Thank you for joining me for today's Beast Watch News Update. News from the Internet's most comprehensive Bible prophecy news website, BeastWatchNews.com. I'm Kimberly Rogers Brown. Beast Watch News continues watching the fulfillment of end time prophecies in Jerusalem and around the world. The Sanhedrin's Judaism agenda continues. Trump's peace plan could be forthcoming. Find out what that means. And we'll take a look at the upcoming blood moons. But first, war news. Specifically, the situation in Syria is on the agenda this week. U.S. President Donald Trump seems to now understand that a quick withdrawal of U.S. troops from Syria would not be in anyone's best interest. He has now said the abrupt withdrawal of U.S. troops from Syria that he announced earlier this month will be carried out slowly. He tweeted on Monday, We're slowly sending our troops back home to be with their families while at the same time fighting ISIS remnants. America's Kurdish allies, who were left exposed to the Turks, appeared poised to move against them, so the Kurds appealed to Syrian government forces for help to secure the northern city Manbij as a guard against any further Turkish offensive. Syrian government forces could be seen taking up position near the city on Sunday, but according to the UK-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, they later pulled out in order to avoid any frictions with U.S. forces still in the area. I believe this situation quickly showed Trump the folly of making military decisions without his military advisors. I believe he saw the folly of leaving U.S. allies who are on the verge of extinction if attacked by Turkey to fight alone. When Trump made his announcement, he declared that ISIS had been defeated. However, on Monday he said U.S. troops would continue fighting remaining IS militants at the same time as the U.S. troops were withdrawing. By the way... ISIS is not defeated in Syria. ISIS remains in pockets of northeastern Syria and the group says it has launched a series of small-scale but deadly attacks on the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces in recent days in claims that could not be independently verified. President Trump appears to have said U.S. troops will exit Syria within four months according to some sources, but Trump denied this plan. According to Debka, when Senator Lindsey Graham said Monday, December 31st, I think we are slowing things, meaning the exit from Syria, down in a smart way, he was referring to U.S. troops leaving eastern and northern Syria, but America is not deserting this part of the country and will continue to maintain a presence after the pullout, he said. This could be wishful thinking, or possibly Trump will backtrack on his campaign promise to withdraw all U.S. troops from Syria. We shall have to wait and see. 
the nature of that presence and the process for the gradual U.S. withdrawal has begun to be revealed. In the last few days, Egyptian and UAE military officers visited the contested North Syrian town of Manbij. They toured the town and its outskirts, checked out the locations of U.S. and Kurdish YPG militia positions, and took notes on how to deploy their own troops as replacements. On the diplomatic side, the White House is in continuous conversation with the UAE Crown Prince Sheikh Mohammed bin Ziyad and Egyptian President Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. The deal Trump is offering is that they take over U.S. positions in Manbij where the Kurds would have sought protection against the Turkish invasion and American air cover will be assured against Russian, Syria or Turkish attack. Approval of the Egyptian UAE forces to Manbij would kick off the stationing of mixed Arab forces in other parts of Syria, including the border with Iraq. If the Trump administration's plans mature, then countries like Saudi Arabia, Morocco, and Algeria would send troops to push the Iranian military presence out, out of key areas where they had taken hold. I believe we could be witnessing the forming connection between the Gog and King of the North wars. One will precipitate the other. I just don't know in what order these will happen. However, the Middle East is rapidly aligning along the Sunni-Shiite axis and Israel is finding itself smack in the middle of this conflict and could soon be in need of a guard as prophesied in Ezekiel 38.7. The pullout of U.S. forces in Syria is pushing Israel into the position of seeking other allies and Netanyahu is rapidly making Arab alliances. This political and military shift, precipitated by the U.S. pulling out of Syria, will further pit the Arab Sunnis against the Iranian Shiite 4 plus 1 coalition. U.S. forces will remain on its permanent military base in Israel's Negev desert even after the Syria pullout. The U.S. will still find itself in the position of having to fight the Persians, Russia and Iran, on Israeli soil when the time comes. In fact, the U.S. presence inside Israel will be a factor that drives Iran to attack Israel. After Iran finally defeats the Arab replacement forces attempting to push Iran out of Syria on behalf of the U.S. and Israel, the Persians' wrath will fuel their attack on Israel and the U.S. will be put in the position of defending Israel on Israel's soil. And I suspect the U.S. will call on NATO forces for help. Last July, NATO's Secretary General made an amazing statement when he said, NATO will not come to Israel's defense in case of attack by archenemy Iran. Israel is a partner, but not a member, and NATO's security guarantee doesn't apply to Israel. Israel's former Ministry Director General Dory Gold said the statement was strange. 
considering that Israel has never requested or expected this type of assistance. Yes, that statement last summer was a strange one for NATO's chief, Jen Stoltenberg, to make. Why do you think he made that statement? It was likely because someone has been asking NATO for military support of Israel, and no, NATO would not fight for Israel, but the United States is a major non-NATO ally, and under the treaty, NATO would be expected to support the U.S. if called upon. The major non-NATO ally known as MNNA is a designation given by the United States government to close allies that have strategic working relationships with the U.S. armed forces but are not members of NATO. While the status does not automatically include a mutual defense pact with the United States, it still confers a variety of military and financial advantages that otherwise are not obtainable by non-NATO countries. In December 2014, the U.S. Congress passed the U.S.-Israel Major Strategic Partner Act. This new category is one notch above the major non-NATO ally classification and adds additional support for defense. The bill additionally calls for the U.S. to increase their war reserve stock in Israel to $1.8 billion. So yes, the United States is expecting support if and when it is attacked in Israel. All that said, and apart from my theory that NATO will get involved when the time comes, there is the possibility that NATO will refuse because Turkey, who is an enemy of Israel, will not be in favor. And Turkey is a NATO member. Possibly this could turn out to be the reason why GOG, which I currently believe is the U.S., gets trounced so badly according to scripture. This defeat could set the U.S. up for defeat by the Eastern Axis, Russia, China, North Korea, when it attacks the U.S., on Wednesday, President Trump disengaged his brain from his mouth and his lips started spouting incomprehensible foreign policy when he said that as far as he's concerned, Iran can do what they want in Syria. What? Can you believe it? Trump made the comment during a conversation with reporters at the end of a cabinet meeting in the White House. Iran is pulling out of Syria, but they can frankly do whatever they want there, he said. Florida's Representative Ted Deutsch, uh, he's a Democrat, replied that Trump lacks such a basic understanding of strategic foreign policy, it's astounding. According to Deutsch, Iran doing what they want in Syria is a threat to U.S. interests in the entire region. U.S. politicians are concerned about U.S. oil interests in the Middle East, but the Bible is concerned about Israel's interests. Trump 
continues to throw Israel under the bus. He continues to fail in his job. And contrary to what American Christians may think, Trump is bad for Israel. The fact of Trump moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem was simply a ploy to have a bargaining chip for his upcoming peace plan that might have been driven by the unseen force of his Reubenite DNA seeking to regain the firstborn status within the family of Jacob. Trump's decision to withdraw from Syria was roundly criticized by his national security advisors and Democratic and Republican lawmakers, several of whom asked him to reconsider. It prompted Defense Secretary Jim Mattis to step down and the U.S. envoy to the coalition fighting the Islamic State militants to resign in protest. The U.S. withdrawal opens the way for Tehran to increase its military strength in Syria. However, Iran will now have to contend with Israel directly. The Israelis carried out an airstrike by IAF F-161 fighter jets firing Delilah cruise missiles from Lebanese airspace into Syria on December 25th. The Israeli government and military chiefs decided to take advantage of the chaos generated by U.S. troops pulling out of Syria and Ankara's threat of a Turkish army thrust across the Euphrates. Israel's purpose was to disable Syrian military sites where Iranian and Hezbollah combat assets were quartered. After the F-16 jets failed to connect to their targets, the IDF sent the F-35 stealth planes over in a second wave. After that multiple raid, Damascus warned that henceforth there would be payback against corresponding targets inside Israel. Damascus wasn't the only one to threaten Israel. Russia also threatened Israel with surface-to-surface missiles against targets inside Israel after the IDF struck inside Syria again. On Wednesday, Israeli authorities broke with protocol and confirmed that the IDF was responsible for the airstrike the previous night, targeting three main sites that were actually involved in Iranian arms transfers to the Hezbollah. Among the weapons targeted by the Israeli strikes were GPS-guided missiles. Russian Defense Ministry spokesman Major General Igor Konashenkov said that when the six Israeli F-16 jets carried out the attack, there were two Syrian civilian airliners preparing to land in Damascus and Beirut. He claimed the IAF attack created a direct threat to the aircraft, forcing the Syrian air defense to curtail their response to the Israeli strike by not deploying electronic jamming or surface-to-air missiles. Lebanon's transport minister, Youssef Finianos, confirmed Russia's claims, saying the two civilian airliners narrowly avoided the IAF jets. Konashenkov said that despite their limited response, the Syrian air defenses shot down 14 of the 16 precision-guided bombs dropped by the Israeli jets, He said that the remaining two bombs hit a Syrian military base four miles west of Damascus. 
An anonymous Israeli official told ABC News that the civilian air traffic was endangered by the Syrian air defenses that fired 30 missiles in response to the airstrike. He also claimed that Iranian forces are operating less than 50 miles from the Israeli border, contrary to Russian assurances that they would prevent this from happening. He reported also that the Israeli airstrike succeeded in hitting all of the intended targets, which included a Syrian anti-aircraft battery. Newsweek reported that a flight carrying senior Hezbollah leaders to Damascus airport was targeted in the airstrike as well. The group was en route to Tehran. Debka reported that one SA-5 missile was fired at Haifa by Russia, which succeeded in evading Israeli air defenses, landing outside the city in an unpopulated area of Mount Carmel. Here is a disturbing article by Haaretz, which says the reaction of the Russian Defense Ministry to the alleged Israeli attack on Damascus on Wednesday was troubling in its harshness, but... It didn't stray from the stern tone the ministry has adopted since the downing of Russian spy plane over Latakia in September. Ministry spokesperson Major General Igor Konoshenkov warned last month against a provocation that will be carried out by hotheads. He didn't mention Israel by name, though it was clear to whom his warning was addressed. The more that Russia is entrenched in Syria, the more it feels bound by its role as patron and protector. This is doubly true after Donald Trump's announcement last week of the impending withdrawal of U.S. forces, which effectively ceded hegemony over Syria to Russian President Vladimir Putin and Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. No choice but to defend its lost honor whenever Israeli jets or missiles sow destruction in its protectorate and emerge unscathed. The humiliation is compounded by the fact that Russia's much ballyhooed retaliation for the downed plane supplying Syria with advanced S-300 anti-aircraft missiles didn't seem to make much of a difference. The ritual, which began after the downing of the plane but has turned more intense in its wake, is that the Russian defense establishment plays the bad cop while Putin improvises. He can play good cop, silent cop, or truly scary cop, depending on what's needed. Putin doesn't want a direct clash with Israel and may privately appreciate its help in degrading Iran's presence in Syria, but there is a limit to his patience and tolerance, and after Trump's officially handed over the keys, the bar is now set far lower. A scenario in which Israel crosses the Kremlin and its red lines because of mishap or smashing success is more realistic today than ever. Tensions between the two countries will flare, warnings will turn to threats, and the danger of a direct clash will increase dramatically. The dynamics of such an escalation are well known to Israeli historians and participants who are still alive because this is exactly what happened half a century ago 
in a different world but under disturbingly similar circumstances. On July 30, 1970, a task force of Israeli Mirage jet fighters shot down five Soviet MiG-21 jets with Soviet pilots manning them in an air battle over the Suez Canal. The incident was no coincidence but a planned ambush carried out by the Israeli Air Force under the code name Ramon 20. Israel decided on the risky attack against a superpower in order to signal the Soviets that it would no longer refrain from attacking the Soviet manned jets and the anti-aircraft missile batteries that the Kremlin had dispatched to defend Egypt. Then too, Moscow found itself compelled to escalate against its better judgment after his attacks exposed the failure of the sophisticated anti-aircraft array that it had given Egypt. It increased its own military involvement in response to the damage to its prestige as protector and as weapon manufacturer. The objective and considerations of Putin in 2018 are not materially different than those of Leonid Brezhnev and the Soviet leadership in 1970. Following a hiatus of introspection that lasted close to two decades, starting with the collapse of communism and ending with Putin's consolidation of power, Russia has once again adopted an imperialist strategy. It seeks to make the Middle East into a Russian sphere of influence. Control of the region is necessary, among other things, in order to serve as a forward post and as a counterbalance against U.S. forces in the Gulf and Europe. All U.S. presidents, from Eisenhower to Obama, were forced to deal with containing Russia's Middle East ambitions each in his own way and own success or failure, but no one doubted their commitment to fighting Russia off until Trump became president. Trump is still seen as a good friend of Israel, but the withdrawal from Syria has eroded the public's confidence in the stability and reliability of his support. The exit from Syria has been interpreted as an expression of his isolationist tendencies and his wish to extract the U.S. from costly military inventions, as he promised during the campaign. During his Christmas visit to U.S. troops in Iraq, Trump presented his more transactional view of international affairs. Israel gets $4.5 billion a year, he said, as if that was the only nature and extent of support that Jerusalem could expect from its friends in Washington. Questions of deterrence projections of power, internship, or the traditional Middle East view of hasty withdrawals as tantamount to cutting and running are either foreign to Trump or pale in significance in his eyes compared to fulfilling his America First ideology, which, it now turns out, could exact a steep price from Israel. But it's one thing to ascribe Trump's withdrawal to his beliefs, self-centered and muddled as these may be, and 
quite another if his behavior including the Syrian retreat stands from a far more sinister place Special Counsel Robert Mueller has yet to unveil a smoking gun pointing directly at Trump, but what is already known is enough to raise suspicions that the President is beholden to the Kremlin in one way or another. This, my friends, is very disturbing news. And if Trump thinks Russia won't turn on him, he should think again. The Russians always have done and will continue to do what is in their best interests. There's no doubt that Russia devoted enormous resources and many millions of dollars to boost Trump's candidacy and there's no doubt that an inordinate number of his closest confidants met frequently with representatives of the Kremlin during the election campaign in order to advance the same goal. Even if Trump didn't play an active role in a conspiracy to collude, he should certainly be aware just how much he owes the Russians. But whatever his true motive, by any results-oriented yardstick, Trump has proven to be a Russian dream come true, advancing the Kremlin's interests as if he was a hired hand. He disdains allies, praises enemies, weakens NATO, bickers with China, revokes sanctions against Putin's cronies, and repeatedly hints that the West should come to terms with the invasion of Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea. Never mind that the division and demoralization that he sows inside the U.S. is throwing away the keys to Syria and is part of the same trend. Under such circumstances, can one rely on Trump to protect Israel if and when it will face a direct threat from Moscow? Under such dangerous circumstances, Trump could turn out to be not the friendliest American president in history, as Netanyahu portrays him, but the most dangerous even if one accepts the contention that it was Obama who opened the doors for Russia to enter the Middle East or that it was Obama who first abandoned Syria, the 44th president frequently confronted Putin's ambitions and pushed back. The fear that Clinton would continue the same line and even toughen it is what convinced the Kremlin to support Trump in the first place. The detachment of America from the Middle East is worrying enough for Israel in the arena of its fight against Iran, Syria, and Hezbollah, which all enjoy Russia's patronage to one degree or another, but it is a clear and present danger if Russia knows that Washington won't resist any pressure or threat on Israel. The void creates a clash that's just waiting to happen. The Israeli army is strong and resilient, but still a midget compared to Russia's million soldiers, 3,500 jets, 15,000 tanks, 55 submarines, and thousands of nuclear bombs. For Israel, a direct clash with Russia is the worst of its nightmares, the sum of its fears. This is true in normal times, 
and doubly so when the U.S. president cannot be relied on even during Israel's most dire need. As conservative columnist Brett Stevens wrote in the New York Times this week about the impact of Trump's Syria retreat, During the eight years of the Obama presidency, I thought U.S. policy toward Israel couldn't get worse. As with so much else, Donald Trump succeeds in making his predecessors look good. And now, under the other threats to Israel category, Iran could use its growing clout in Iraq to turn it into a springboard for attacks against Israel, the chief of Israeli military intelligence said on Monday. Iraq is under the growing influence of the covert Iranian Foreign Operations Unit, the Quds Force, and Iran, military intelligence chief Major General Tamir Heyman told a conference in Tel Aviv. With U.S. President Donald Trump disengaging from the region, Heyman said the Iranians may see Iraq as a convenient theater for entrenchment, similar to what they did in Syria, and to use it as a platform for a force buildup that could also threaten the state of Israel. Iraq's Prime Minister said on Sunday that security officials from Baghdad had met Syrian President Bashar al-Assad in Damascus and hinted at a bigger Iraqi role fighting Islamic State militants as U.S. troops withdraw. Citing Iranian, Iraqi, and Western sources, Reuters reported in August that Iran had transferred short-range ballistic missiles to Shiite allies in Iraq. Baghdad denied the findings. The following week, Israel said it might attack such sites in Iraq, effectively expanding a campaign now focused on Syria. Trump's withdrawal of U.S. forces now makes no sense. Furthermore, the move escalates the threat of war rather than keeping that threat curtailed. If the earth isn't plunged into the Great Tribulation soon, the history books could record Trump as the worst president the U.S. ever had. And now... Moving forward and continuing to watch the manipulations of Israel's nascent Sanhedrin, let me first remind you that when I speak of the Jews collectively, I am referring to the Jewish people's leadership, not the people themselves. My foray into the Middle East has taught me what I could never have learned by staying in the United States, which is that Yahweh's people are all duped, regardless of which monotheistic religion they practice. Yeshua came teaching the kingdom, not religion. I just put out a video on that this week. You might want to go and take a look at it. The leaven of the Pharisees of Yeshua's time has turned into the leaven of the Sanhedrin in modern times. All that said, let's now look at how Breaking Israel News, the nascent Sanhedrin's news outlet and mouthpiece, is helping the Sanhedrin push Judaism and Christianity together 
through its exclusive articles. Stay tuned, I'll be right back after these messages. Each year at Passover, you say, Next year in Jerusalem. Well, this is the year. Join Ani Yosef for 13 glorious days in and around Jerusalem, beginning with four days of service to the land, followed by Passover and a week of touring in Jerusalem. For just $825, get lodging and two meals per day while staying in a Jewish community with other Hebrews from all over the world. Go to AniYosef.com for details. That is A-N-I-Y-O-S-E-F dot com. Join us this year in Jerusalem. Thank you for listening to the Jerusalem Report on Beast Watch News. Full news coverage with a Hebraic perspective of the headlines fulfilling Bible prophecy. Remember to financially and prayerfully support Beast Watch News for keeping you up to date. Send your donation to Beast Watch News today. It takes money to operate this ministry, and your help is much appreciated. The Sanhedrin has said it will mint a commemorative coin to Nikki Haley this week. The Sanhedrin's commemorative coin is in recognition of Nikki Haley's exemplary service as the 29th U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Haley tendered her resignation in October, effective at the end of 2018. The Sanhedrin issued the commemorative coin in conjunction with an invitation for Haley to serve as the honorary president of a biblically mandated organization of 70 nations. This last statement should make your antennae go up because the biblical mandate is not about a unification of the Gentile nations, but the commonwealth of Israel, Yeshua's kingdom of 12 tribes who are destined to rule those 70 nations. The Sanhedrin is twisting the scriptures in order to reject and leave the house of Israel out of their Messiah's plans for the UN-created state of Israel. They are working against scripture, not with the scriptures. The face of the coin has an image of Haley superimposed on an image of the United Nations General Assembly building in New York City with the flag of Israel prominently displayed next to the U.S. flag. Also on the face of the coin are the words 70 Nations Organization Jerusalem in Hebrew and English displayed over an image of the seven-branched menorah that once stood in each of the Jewish temples in Jerusalem. This was the second commemorative coin dedicated to a non-Jew. Last year, the Sanhedrin issued a coin engraved with the image of Trump, superimposed on an image of Persian King Cyrus, who ended the Babylonian exile and played a pivotal role in establishing the Second Temple in 516 BCE. The Sanhedrin's approach to Nikki Haley began long before she resigned from the United Nations. They didn't just now decide to mint a coin for her. 
Also, remember that the Sanhedrin offered her the honorary presidents of their new United Nations when they erected the rehearsal altar on the last day of Hanukkah. So, my friends, this plan has been in the works for a long time. It is only now coming to light, little by little, as the Sanhedrin issues articles and statements in Breaking Israel News. You know, the New World Order always has to let you know what it's doing. According to the article, Jews who purchase the coin can consider it as fulfilling the mitzvah, the Torah commandment of the half-shekel. In the days of the temple, every male in Israel was obligated to donate a half-shekel of silver at the beginning of the month of Adar, which was used to pay for the operating expenses of the temple for the entire year. Here is a real big reason for the Sanhedrin becoming so public about its plans. Money! No doubt they are raising money for the building of the temple, the one that they want their Jewish Messiah to reign from. And, of course, they now want to trot out their Messiah, which they say is already alive and thriving on the earth. Here is an article titled, Orthodox Jews and Pro-Israel Evangelical Christians Unite to Save Just One Life. This article makes the point that Judaism and Christianity are not so far apart after all. As far as I can tell, this is a recent development. Judaism has insisted for almost 2,000 years that Christianity is nowhere close to being the good kind of religion it is. That is, until just recently with the erection of the rehearsal altar at which they announced to the world that they intend to make everyone either a Judaism Jew or a Noahide. Um, Mostly Noahide. And here is an article about Uganda's Jews that makes my points about Judaism's conversion agenda. It says, Here is a community which converted to Judaism more than 100 years ago. Need I say more? Well, yes. These are not original Jews, but Judaism converts a whole community. One statement we hear repeatedly now is that the Jews have no conversion agenda. This is as false today as it was in Yeshua's time when he said in Matthew 23:15, "How terrible it would be for you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites!" You travel over land and sea to make a single convert. And when this happens, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. In this article titled, Rabbis Seeking Hidden Jews in India, we read, Our ancestors were a shepherd family and belonged to the tribe of Ephraim from the house of Yosef. We can find the tribes of Levi, Ephraim, and Manasseh in India, but in recent years there are thousands of people awakening and identifying their souls in the terms of Torah by connecting to Israel. 
Now what's wrong with this statement? Only that the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh were never Jews. They were never house of Judah. Ephraim has always been associated with the house of Israel, the house of Joseph, and the house of Ephraim in Scripture. Now, there is a caveat to this, however. Second Chronicles 15.9 says, And he, that's King Asa, gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon. For they fell to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Lord was his God and was with him. Ask any rabbi if all the tribes are present within Judaism. Most will reply, yes. But they will also tell you that as far as actual population goes, there are not enough numbers from the other tribes for them to make the claim that all the tribes are with the Jews. The most they can claim is that there are some people from the other tribes with them. Truthfully, the house of Judah, the Jews, has a smattering of Hebrew people from all the tribes as I said just a minute ago Ezekiel 37 indicates that the house of Judah will have companions by the end of days in gathering these companions are those who have joined with the Jews and may even identify as Jews when the ingathering occurs the house of Israel too has companions in the end of days according to Ezekiel 37 the house of Israel has not ceased to exist and is not within Judaism in the end of days they must still be ingathered these companions are those house of Judah Hebrews who are scattered within the house of Israel in all the Gentile nations along with the unnumbered Gentiles that have come to faith in Yeshua through the house of Israel trapped in Christianity so the house of Judah has house of Israel people within and the house of Israel has house of Judah scattered with them now let's talk about Trump's peace plan has it been leaked according to breaking Israel news President Donald Trump intends Jerusalem into three not two sections the three sections include Western Jerusalem and the Western Wall to belong to the Jews, several parts of East Jerusalem to belong to the Palestinians, and the third section to belong to the international community. The Breaking Israel News's article title asks the question, Will evangelical prophetic visions be the key to an undivided Jewish Jerusalem? The rumor may not be true about the dividing of Jerusalem into three sections, but the prophetic implication runs deep since the Jews seem to now want to look to Christians to make an outcry against the idea.
the house of Judah Jews want house of Israel Christians to uphold the house of Judah's right to Jerusalem without so much as an acknowledgement that Christians are in the Abrahamic covenant along with the Jews we should all uphold Jerusalem as Yahweh's undivided capital and uphold Judah's right to own the entire area because Jerusalem sits mostly inside Judah's biblical territory except for a small parcel that belongs to Benjamin one absolutely true statement in this article says dividing Jerusalem would not bring peace to the city if anything it will just intensify the battle President Trump has asked Netanyahu to make the peace deal the focal point of his election campaign according to Debka this insistent request keeps on coming up in contacts with Washington including Netanyahu's conversation with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo rather in Brazil on Tuesday January 1st the peace plans authors the president's advisors Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt have been placed on standby for finally going public on their PR making it a central feature of Netanyahu's campaign would reuse the general election as a kind of referendum for its popular endorsement some of Trump's advisors suggested as a compromise that just sections of the peace plan be released at this stage not the entire opus they hoped that Trump would be deterred from losing patience and turning to Twitter to unveil his plan with the same abruptness as the US troop pullback from Syria last month he could do this in a series of tweets now let's take a look at breaking Israel news's take on the blood moons of 2019 this rabbinic expert says first super blood moon of the year sign of earthquakes governments will fall on the evening of January 21st as the holiday of Tu B'Shavat begins a lunar eclipse will pass over Washington DC just as the president will reach the halfway point of his term in office the eclipse will be a super blood moon described in Jewish sources as having powerful significance the evening of the eclipse will be a supermoon when the moon is at its perigee the point in its month-long elliptical orbit that brings it closest to the earth at that time the moon appears up to 14 percent bigger and 30 percent brighter than at its apogee its furthest point from earth this will not only be the first lunar eclipse of 2019 but also the year's first supermoon at that time the proper conditions will exist to create a blood moon in which the moon has a distinctly reddish tint this will be the last total lunar eclipse until May 26, 2021 the date also marks the halfway point of Donald Trump's presidency coming exactly two years after he was sworn in as the 45th president of the United States 
It should be noted that Trump was born on the night of June 14, 1946, within 15 minutes of a total lunar eclipse and 700 days before the State of Israel was established. Trump's lucky sevens did not end there. When he was sworn in as president on January 20, 2017, he was 70 years old, 7 months, and 7 days. The holiday of Tu B'Shavat, the 15th day of the Hebrew month of Shavat, begins at sundown on the same day. Known as the New Year of the Trees, Tu B'Shavat is one of the four New Years mentioned in the Mishnah, the Oral Law of Moses, not to be confused with the Oral Law of Judaism's traditions. Rabbi Mordecai Ganut discussed the lunar eclipse in his book Devar Bito, a guide to the calendar based on the esoteric Jewish sources. A lunar eclipse in the month of Shavat is a sign of the rise of din, judgment, in the world, Rabbi Ganut told Breaking Israel News. This eclipse will rule over the Americas, but for Israel it will bring loving kindness. So, let me get this straight, Rabbi. The Americas, which includes the United States, will bring negative prophetic events to Israel's ally while Israel enjoys blessings. Good show, Rabbi. Once again, the house of Israel suffers while the house of Judah enjoys whatever the house of Judah will enjoy. I have often said the U.S. is going to get a big surprise of destruction. But it seems to me that the house of Judah, the Jews, think they will escape such destruction, which is actually punishment from Yahweh because of their unrighteousness. Let's keep reading because Rabbi Ganut described specifically how this judgment will be expressed. There will be a marked increase in earthquakes and volcanoes, even more than we have seen in the past year, Rabbi Ganut said. Just as the eclipse is a conflict between the sun and the moon to rule over the heavens, there will be a similar conflict on the earth. This will begin a time when governments are in balance. Some governments that seem powerful right now will fall and others will rise in their place. Judaism specifically describes solar eclipses as being a bad omen for the nations. Indeed, the complete solar eclipse that traversed United States in August 2018 ushered in the most devastating hurricane season in U.S. history. Lunar eclipses are a bad omen for Israel, since Israel is spiritually represented by the moon, and the Hebrew calendar is figured by the lunar cycles. If, during the course of the lunar eclipse, the moon appears red, this is an omen that great wars will come to the world. Now, I agree that wars are coming to the world, but rabbis claim that the moon represents Israel, except when it turns red. 
then its foreboding omen no longer represents Israel but the world hmm at the end of this section describing the omens contained within eclipses the Talmud states a disclaimer when Israel does the will of God they have nothing to fear from all of this citing the prophet Jeremiah as a source thus said Hashem do not learn to go the way of the nations and do not be dismayed by portents in the sky let the nations be dismayed by them Jeremiah 10.2 Rabbi Yosef Berger applied this teaching in the Talmud to the current geopolitical situation it's not that the bad judgment symbolized by the lunar eclipse just disappears Rabbi Berger told Breaking Israel News it is merely averted to our enemies in this case the wars and the evil will fall on our enemies by choosing to be our enemies the Arab nations have brought the evil that might have befallen Israel up on themselves this is especially true when the lunar eclipse falls on Tu B'Shavat a day when only good can happen to Israel my first comment is that the Jews do have need to fear for three reasons one if the US is destroyed their funding and most of their diplomatic and military alliances will dry up and two they are not living righteously according to Yahweh's Torah but according to the Talmud's own perverted version of rightness and third if their new Arab allies are defeated in Syria the defeat of Israel will soon follow I guess they haven't yet looked at the prophecy of Isaiah about the house of Judah you can pull that down in the article and read that prophecy for yourself Jewish leaders need to take a long hard look at what is in store for them and their people before pronouncing judgment on everyone else except them Jeremiah 10 verses 2 to 4 is all about decorating trees like the heathen do it is not about saving the Jews from destruction finally this breaking Israel news article asks does Trump's border wall fulfill Ezekiel 22 the answer is no the wall in Ezekiel 22 does not refer to the Israeli PA wall or Trump's southern border wall the entire context of Ezekiel chapter 22 regards the problem of unrighteousness in Jerusalem the breach in the wall is the breach of sin in the city of Jerusalem a breach that has caused unrighteousness to abound instead of holding back unrighteousness Israel's modern religious leaders are teaching the Jews to accept sin among them yet the rabbi who wrote this article has the audacity to point to America's sin and to use Trump's southern border as a sign of his and America's sin like Christians 
who string divergent scriptures together like pearls to create a new understanding that leads to false doctrine. The Jews also cherry-pick scriptures to make their false claims. Leaven of the Pharisees, my friends. Beware of it. That's it for this Beast Watch News update. This is Kimberly Rogers Brown signing off. Click over to BeastWatchNews.com for full comprehensive coverage of all the headlines fulfilling end of days Bible prophecy.